This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Julian Morrow. Welcome to The Roundtable. If you go to the Optus homepage today, you'll see a message in big text that says, we are deeply sorry. The cyber attack has happened on our watch and we're working to prevent any harm to our customers. I think it's fair to say that CEO of Optus is probably the least coveted title in corporate Australia right now. Here's Optus CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin speaking to ABC News on the 22nd of September. We're so deeply disappointed because we spend so much time and we invest so much in preventing this from occurring. Our teams have been very active and thwarted a lot of attacks in the past. We're very sorry that this one was successful and I'm I'm very sorry for all our customers and our people that this occurred. So on the roundtable today, we're going to discuss what it's like to be in a corporate leadership position or indeed the public face of an organisation of any sort when bad things happen on your watch. And each of our guests have uh, had an experience like that, albeit in very different ways. Christine Nixon is the chair of Leadership Victoria these days. She was, of course, uh, the chief commissioner of Victoria Police for eight years from 2001 and as the first and only woman to hold that office to date. Uh, And Christine was the commissioner of police during the devastating Victorian bushfires of early 2009, which of course claimed the lives of 173 people. Christine Nixon, thanks very much for joining us on the roundtable today. Good morning. You're very welcome. It's great to have you. Uh, We're also joined by Elizabeth Lucan, who was the head of uh, the AFL's corporate affairs and communications for several years and also worked in public relations for Essendon at the start of uh, the club's uh, drug scandal. So you've uh, dealt with this many, many times, I'm sure. Elizabeth, welcome to the roundtable. Thanks, Julian. And yes, I have. And I'm looking forward to the discussion. Great to have you. Uh, We're also joined by Meredith Helicar, who's the (laughs) chair and mentor at CMI. Merrick, uh, a global mentoring organisation that works with CEOs and company boards. Uh, Meredith has held many executive roles, but uh, most notoriously, I suppose, she was the uh, on the board of asbestos manufacturer James Hardy's and the chair of the company during uh, a very deep and public crisis over the inadequate provision of um, compensation for victims of asbestos. Meredith Helicar, thank you very much for joining us for this conversation today as well. Morning, Julian, and hi, Elizabeth and Christine. It is great to have you all. Uh, Of course, the focus of this roundtable is the challenges of leadership and communications in times of very intense scrutiny and and, and severe criticisms. But of course, I I do want to acknowledge up front that the tragedy of the many lives lost, of course, because of the bushfires and asbestos products and the trauma of of people affected by it. And and if hearing about those things is still upsetting, you might want to give this roundtable a miss. Uh, But uh, I'd like to start the conversation by uh, asking each of you, drawing on your experiences, if if you could have said something to Optus CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin uh, when the leak had been discovered and as, uh, it, you know, preparing for it to go public, what would you have said? Christine Nixon? Look, I think her coming out very early was was important and apologising, but I think the next kind of point she, she really should have got to and sort of disaster management 101 will tell you that you've got to kind of explain, uh, you know, what's happened, but then what's happening next. And I think that's the piece that was missing at the time. People didn't really know what was going to be the next phase. And so I would have said to her, so, okay, what's next and what are we doing now and what's next? And I think people got a bit confused 
about, so, okay, thanks for that, but what happens next? Yeah. Um, now, Elizabeth Lucan, as you mentioned, you've probably had to uh, have exactly that conversation many times. Uh, what would you have said to Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin um, before, you know, all hell but broke loose on the publicity front? Unlike Meredith and Christine, I'm a backroom person, so I'm kind of in the background giving advice. Um, And I've worked both internally in a big organisation, the AFL, and externally for a lot of organisations. And I think I would have counselled that before we put a CEO out there to start with the apology cycle, we better make sure we know everything, we have all the information. Because if you go out too early and apologise... Or if you go out too early into the spin cycle and you haven't and your kind of words don't match the actions and the information that unfolds in the crisis, then you're kind of done. So I might have been more cautious with the CEO. Getting out quickly is very important. But if you as an advisor let your CEO go out and do or say something in the first 12, 24, 48 hours that is found to be not correct. It's a very, very difficult thing when you go into an organisation. And if you're in the organisation, actually, you tend to be part of the decision-making or the leadership team that's actually got you into this terrible trouble as it is. It's very easy in hindsight to say, oh, man, didn't she stuff that media up on Friday? You know, you never let your CEO or your chair go out and say something before you, the comms person, haven't put them absolutely through the ringer. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, yeah. And, and, and yeah. being put through the ringer as well internally because I suppose you know you're going to go into an environment where, um, you, you know, there's going to be no mercy. But it's interesting that that how, how do you strike the balance between doing that preparation and the fact that, no doubt, there are always people clamouring for a response from the, the, the highest office in the organisation? One of the things I wanted to say about public apologies, right, corporate apologies, sporting apologies, you know, apologies of people behaving badly, is I think 20 years ago, and I've been doing this job a long time, you know, apologies mean something different now because we have got a very sophisticated listenership, readership, investor group, stakeholder group, fan base. You know, they know what an apology is now. Mm. And it's, you know, they know it's part of the spin cycle. And, and so, you know... It, it's um, you can't just maybe 20 years ago, crisis comms might have said, look, do your apology quick, get it out there. I, I think um, we, we have a too sophisticated and chaotic communications environment to think that uh, that simply an apology is going to get you through to the next stage. Oh, that's really interesting. Thanks very much, Elizabeth Lucan. Uh, Meredith Helicar, uh, if I could come to you. Imagine you were um, Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin's uh, coach or mentor um, and uh, it would be a pretty tough time, I would have thought, for a coach or mentor to be speaking to someone. But what would you, what would you have said to her? Well, the role of a coach and mentor is very much to support the individual and also challenge the individual. Um, so I would support the things that uh, both Christine and Elizabeth have said um, and challenge um, statements that um, might uh, not be fully researched um, and make sure, along with the comms people, that you know, everything um, that is being said is entirely accurate and much better to say, I don't know, we're still working on it than to um, hazard, hazard a guess. Um, I agree absolutely that laying out the next steps um, is is hugely important. You, you can't leave a back, 
vacuum, but I'd also get on to some advice like listen to your communications advisors. Do not be captured by the lawyers. Um, Australian lawyers are very conservative, um, not experienced in uh, reputation management, and you cannot afford just to sink into their grips. Um, I'd also... Um, advise that sometimes you have to go deeper into the abyss before you see the light. Um, Joe Simpson's Touching the Void book um, is incredibly helpful in that regard. It, it will pass, but um, don't expect it to pass early and do not, whatever you do, complain about your own situation. Um, you must at all times keep the focus on the plight of the people that have been affected by it the breach in this case or, you know, whatever the um, stuff up is that you're dealing with. Thanks, Meredith. And that's really interesting, the, the the tension between what you might be getting from the advice you might be getting from communications team and from lawyers. Uh, Elizabeth Lucan, is that a, uh, a scenario you're, you're pretty familiar with? <laughs> that, you know, I'm just laughing because I've sat in rooms when there's been a bunch of lawyers, mostly male, and me, and, um, I mean, it's, it's better now than it was. I think Meredith's right. Um, but, I, but I think um, I've been fortunate to work with lawyers who understand their patch and also understand what they don't know about the court of public opinion. But in my early days, sitting in rooms, listening to lawyers give advice and me just thinking, holy hell, how do I start, you know, how do I start this conversation by saying, if you go and do that, you know, you, you're just not going to survive this in the court of public opinion. So Mr Lawyer over here who thinks he knows everything about, you know, suing this person, suing that person, taking that person for defamation, you know, like you, you can take that advice or you can survive this crisis by listening to me. And um, I've had great experiences with lawyers too who really do understand that, that their discipline um, can only go so far when it's a public relations crisis. I mean, most things are not, of course, just public relations crises. And um, Christine and, and Meredith have, have both been in situations managing huge, big, complex organisations. Um, I'm just the comms person, right? So, um, I've learnt more as I've got older about the complexities of things. But, yeah, um, yeah, lawyers can give shockingly bad advice. And not only that, they're so certain of their own position um, that it is very hard sometimes. I think it is getting better, though, that comms people, you know, uh, sit around the executive table now and sit around, you know, the governance table too, people who bring that kind of understanding about audience and, and um, communications. Thanks, Elizabeth. Christine Nixon, if I could come back to you. It was interesting to hear Elizabeth talk about uh, how, in a way, the nature of an apology has changed a lot over the years. Uh, is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, and I think as she... Um uh, it's really lovely to listen to Elizabeth and Meredith, and I wish I'd, they, they'd been around when I got into some of my difficulties. <laughs> but um, I think the, you know, it is it is important to. Um, I've found that going out early, particularly in some of the policing matters um, that I've dealt with, and just simply saying we have stuffed this up and we now need to work on this and and here's what we're going to do. But I, 
so I think, you know, that's that's an important piece. But, you see, in my days, really, we didn't have all of the social media, you know, that time of, which isn't all that long ago, but we, we didn't have all of that complexity of communications and there was a certain number of journalists and they were the ones covering, you know, the area I was mostly in at the time. So I think that has changed over time. But the other point, I just was listening to the comments about lawyers. Uh, lawyers certainly have their place. And, uh, you know, they're the ones when you're kind of maybe a bit further down the track when someone legally is going to take class actions or all of that. I think that's a bit further down the track for them when they when they become very valuable, actually. Mm. On the roundtable today, we're discussing the challenges of leadership when uh, things go wrong in an, your organisation uh, and you might indeed be the public face of uh, the organisation and, uh, and become the subject of particularly vitriolic uh, criticism. Uh, Meredith Helicar, if I could come back to you, you you did an interview with the uh, the Ethics Centre last year, where you said that there were um, many lessons. You said both practical and ethical uh, from your time at James Hardy. What do you see as th- those lessons being? Well, there are a number of practical ones that are probably a bit boring for people to listen to, as far as directors like. Um, always read the minutes um, all uh, because if the minutes say something, even if it didn't happen, then uh, the High Court will say it did happen, even when a forensic examination shows that it didn't. Um, But the more interesting ones, I think, are the practical ones and um, the ethical ones. Um, I think I've mentioned the first one of don't don't just be captured by um, by the lawyers. Um, the other one is ensure that your employees are well informed every step of the way. Um, I certainly tried to make sure that every Friday afternoon we had some communication out to the poor staff who had to be out in the public over the weekend answering questions um, and sometimes you're so busy focusing on the external issues that um, the staff can be left behind. So never forget that um, your staff are going through this as well. Um, the the other lessons are to um, ensure always that you don't lose your peripheral vision. When we get into a crisis, our amygdala is hijacked, we get into fight or flight, and our focus tends to narrow. And that's the last thing you want to have happen. Sure, you need to be absolutely focused on every step that you need to take. Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin will be sleeping four hours a night if she's lucky at the moment. She's got a list of, you know, thousands of things that she needs to do. But she does need to ensure and everyone involved in leadership during a crisis needs to ensure that they maintain their peripheral vision constantly, keep um, a wide lens on what what's happening, what people are thinking. The other one is also ensure that you have a group of advisors that is diverse in every way. Um, again, this sort of crisis can lead to a bit of groupthink <clears throat> and the last thing you want is just to have a group of people in the room who all approach things the same way. So ensure you invite into the room, um, you know, the black hats, the positive hats, etc. Um, and the last one, would be don't accept at face value anything your people tell you. No one wakes up every morning trying to say or do the wrong thing. But 
um, people aren't necessarily as knowledgeable as you may have thought they are. Um, in our case, actually, we had some um, management who did wake up in the mornings and sought to do the wrong thing. And, you know, we were misled. But we may not have been if we had asked one more question, if we had pushed a bit harder. And it's awful to say that because people don't like the idea of not being able to trust the people that work for them. But as I say, mostly it's not a matter of not being able to trust them for nefarious reasons. It's just that people aren't always as knowledgeable as you think they are or or they've got tunnel vision. So get several opinions along the way. And of course, that's a trade-off as far as time is concerned. Um, and, you know, as has been mentioned, time becomes the essence because everyone is clamouring for answers. But I do think when you can't answer, still say something, still go out and be honest about, I don't know yet. Yes, I know it's taking a long time from yeah. your point of view, but, you know, I don't know. Thanks very much, Meredith. So, so many interesting threads there and potentially some interesting tensions between uh, needing to keep the employees well, well informed but also being a bit sceptical about what you're hearing from um, your employees. Uh, Christine Nixon, um, I suppose I'd just invite you to comment on any of those things Meredith uh, said um, or I suppose to, to look back on um, perhaps things that, that you know you learnt as things you might do differently if you had your time again. Sure. Look, I you know I think all of that is is great advice and being, um, you know, just I think taking your time, having a bit of perspective, that's the hard part because you get caught up in a whirlwind and and trying to sort of investigate, you know, or listen to people who are investigating what happened, and you just kind of take get yourself a bit, I got it a bit like going round and round in circles, and sometimes you just need to get a bit of distance from that to kind of get get a bit of calmness and then think about where you're up to and and I think that's a that's a piece of it because you're in the what we're really talking about is the very early stages the the kind of initial response but of course you know the crisis goes on and in many cases you're not going to solve it you know straight away you have, you have to then think about okay what's our next response and or have people you know working on that because it's going to it is going to go on over time and and in say in policing it would have been okay so we found this issue about corruption we're now going to have to um, you know, think through what's the steps of investigation, how are we going to fix this sort of problem going down the track. And so I think that's one part. If you talk the bushfires and, you know, the initial uh, response to it, you know, there are very set processes that uh, emergency services have in how you go about, you know, working in that. So you also might rely on, on you know, the plans and practices that are in place to to work through. And I think that's kind of an important piece to many organisations have those plans already and it's about getting, getting them out. And and sometimes we forget about that. We sort of think, oh, yeah, we, we've got plans, but we're going to ignore those. Don't ignore them. Get the plans out that you've had in place and then follow that process and adapt when necessary. So I think that's important. But I can also, um, you know, a CEO of any organisation who is, is under that pressure um, it's it's a difficult place to be, and I think you're looking for all of that support, looking for wise head, heads around you, and also starting to think, you know, what's the future look like, and where are we going next? Elizabeth Lucan, um, uh, is there a tension sometimes between uh, the communications internally and needing to both, you know, maintain morale but also be sceptical, and then what you message outside to the media and others? Oh, look. Uh, this is really fascinating conversation because we look at Optus, if we just go back to Optus, right, right and all of these big 
organisations, publicly listed companies, big, you know, public institutions, government-run um, and corporatised entities, they all have got very sophisticated risk committees, risk registers, like a lot of internal discussion goes on about these things. And it's that's become more sophisticated over the last few years. And it just, you know, it what is stunning is even if you've got all of those plans in place and you look at Optus, you would think that a hacking or a leaking of data would have been pretty high up on their risk register yeah. and it would have been in the column that says likely to happen and on the other, you know, axis of that that graph it would have been, you know, this will be really dangerous if it does happen. So there would be crisis management plans in place and then an organisation hits the crisis and it looks to people outside like, holy hell, did they not even follow their own kind of media crisis plan, which is how it feels to me as an external person looking in. So that's one thing I'll say is organisations, even the most sophisticated of them, might have all of these plans in place. Then when a crisis hits, it does get down to the culture of the leadership and the workplace. And so, you know, there was an APRA report done in 2018 into the Commonwealth Bank onto one of their various you know, major crises. And it went to the um, issue of, you know, an internal kind of culture of, you know, in the good sense, collaboration and consensus. But actually what's missing in that, that, you know, in the good side of that is everybody, you know, everybody's trying to work collaboratively together. The bad side of that culture is nobody stands up and says, wait a minute, what are we doing that for? So Meredith talked about this and Christine, I'm sure, uh, as well. It's that... And I've, I've got the benefit of being able to do this as an external consultant. You know, speaking truth to power mm. is really important. And the people in these organisations, they're the most powerful. They're the CEOs and they're the chairs. And or they're the chief operating officers or they're the board. And, you know, if you don't have people in your organisation who are fearless and courageous... And so if your organisation is all about consensus and collaboration, great. But where are the people who are going to stand up and say, we shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be saying that? And, and we are in a different time now. This, the, what we say and what we do is um, so much easier to undo for organisations. Um, so what we say and what we do, <laughs> we better make sure that lines up and when a crisis happens, you know, that's when the gap between what we say and what we do um, can, can be and will be exploited. Christine would know this in policing, you know, nothing stays a secret and I do know it in football too, nothing stays a secret. So how you manage in that really, you know, difficult environment, I think. So, yeah, mm. speaking truth to power, you know, I, some, I, I know myself that it's hard to give advice to people sometimes um, and in a big crisis like this, self-preservation does actually drive people. Self-interest yeah. and self-preservation and getting through that is really, really hard. I want to come back to that self-preservation uh, aspect, uh, but Christine Nixon, um, uh, when crises like these happen, do you think that the way uh, female leaders are treated is different? Look, I do. And I think uh, I think the part of it is that there, first of all, are not enough women in leadership positions. I mean, you just take the top 300 ASX companies in Australia now, only 16 out of the 300 are led by women. So, first of all, there's still not enough women. I think also women are 
kind of um, held up as the example of their whole sex. So if one of us stuffs it up, then therefore all women, you know, are not capable of doing things. So I do think part of it is, um, you know, has a has a focus about being a woman uh, in it that we're supposed to not stuff up. We're supposed to do everything right. So and and held, I think, sometimes to um, higher standards in that regard too. So it's not every every time, but I think there is an instance there where we've got some good evidence. In fact, says you know women are held to higher standards and and often more criticised um, than than perhaps a male might be in the circumstances. And I know in my case, a few people have said to me, you know, if what you did uh, and you were a bloke, um, then in many cases it probably, you know, wouldn't have even got a, a second thought. But being a woman is a bit different. And I guess one of the commentators at one point said to me, so this is what happens when you set a woman to do a bloke's job, you know, and you still have that commentary in the in the media. Uh, thanks, Christine. And obviously, I'd invite comments from both our other guests on on that question as, as well. But Meredith Helicar, another thing that was mentioned earlier is this, uh, you know, Elizabeth was saying, you know, if you're going to survive this crisis, but you also talked about the, uh, you know, the danger of tunnel vision. Looking back on it, do you think that uh, perhaps uh, in your case, it might have been better to have left earlier? Or did you feel like a duty to stay on longer? And how do you strike that balance? Mm-hmm. Look, um, I've been asked that question a lot if I do it again, um, and I have very mixed feelings. Um, I wasn't forced to do it, but the difficulty was that I was the best person to do it. Um, whether I did a good job or not is another question, but I was the best person available on the board to do it, um, and I had a passion for rectifying the past. So I would have done it. And I needed to stay on and see through. Um, I find it appalling that people are already talking about Kelly Bayer Osmar and, you know, losing her job. The people that are at the helm when the crisis breaks are often, not always, but often the best people to see it through because they do have that passion to to make it right. Yeah, and I suppose um, there, th- yeah. there's the rub, isn't it? Um, uh, sometimes, but not always, the, the, the best people. Elizabeth Lucan, um, h- how do you make that judgment call about whether, you know, sometimes it's it, that what, what's actually needed is a change in leadership versus sticking it out and sort of taking responsibility? Look, I've had a couple of circumstances where the person getting called into an organisation and the person says to me, oh, I'm not going to survive this crisis, am I? And when you get that from a leader and they understand the depth of the problem and they're committed to the to the good of the organisation, then you know you're working with a really decent person. And it, because it's not just about what did you know. People in really senior positions who say, I didn't know, um, you know, it's kind of not good enough. You were the CEO, you were the chair, you should have known. So when I look at the Optus CEO, it, it you know, it is too early to say, but... Um, of course, but uh, can I go back to the issue of women being, yeah, sure. you know, can, can I say I've made a, I've had a long career out of men behaving badly, Julian, and to all of your listeners, you can still buy shares in men behaving badly because it's a stock that only keeps rising. <laughs> and, but, but what I will say is I think women in leadership positions go into these crises with less brand equity in the bank, right? They will get judged quicker and harsher because they are still 
pretty new to us, as Christine says. She was the first and, you know, how any and woman got to the head of the police, you'd, you'd have to be as tough as anything to get there. So you don't quite have the brand equity in the bank and, you know, because a lot of other things hold up male leadership still, um, you know, the, the kind of the old boys club, the who they know. And so women, yeah, when they stuff up, it's seen as a stuff up on behalf of their whole gender, which is so unfair. Um but I think as one of um, the other guests said, you know, you, ca you can't, you don't want to call on that card while you're in the position or that really does do you in. You know, I'm being treated badly because I'm a woman. Um, well, particularly if you're in the middle of a crisis. Yeah, that's interesting. a genuine true crisis. Yeah. Then, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's only something you can talk about really in retrospect. Yeah, well, Julia Gillard said that looking back and that she wished she had called out some of the things that she thought were specific to gender herself. Well, what do you think about that, that challenge? Look, I think... I I suppose when I started in the job, I said to everybody, I'm a woman and I'm going to manage this like a woman would and and that's what I'm going to do. So I think I call that out early, really, yeah. so that uh, – and I'm going to do this job in the way I think best. So, But I do think women do a great job, actually, and I think they're way more um, thoughtful. They're also very good at dealing with people. So I think having more women in those leadership positions, we will do better over time. Well, bravo to that and uh, thanks to the three <laughs> women who've been part of uh, what's been a really engaging roundtable discussion today. Uh, Elizabeth Lucan, thanks Thanks very much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thanks, Julian. And thanks to you, Meredith Helicar, as well. You're welcome. And thanks, Christine Nixon. Thanks, Julian. Bye. And that's all we have time for on the Roundtable today. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Julian Morrow. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.